Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, Cary Grant and the making of a Hollywood icon. How China went communist in 1949 and its impact on the world. The death of King Arthur in epic verse. Isaac Newton's later career, including his investment in the slave trade. And finally, to end the show, we'll talk about early medieval handbells and what they were used for. Last week, we looked at the life and work of John Steinbeck and discussed his critique of the American dream. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. I'd also like to give a shout out for my mother. It's her birthday tomorrow. I hope she has a great day. And in fact, she might be getting a special secret surprise visit as well as we celebrate with her. But we begin tonight's show with one of my mother's favourites, and that is Cary Grant. Archie Leach was a poorly educated working class boy from a troubled family living in the back streets of Bristol. Cary Grant was Hollywood's most debonair film star, the embodiment of worldly sophistication. A new book tells the incredible story of how a sad, neglected boy became the suave, glamorous star many know and idolise. The book is called Cary Grant, The Making of a Hollywood Legend. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press and costs €25. The author is Mark Glancy and Mark you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What's fascinating about this study is that you've been able to use Cary Grant's own personal papers. And this is the first biography that's had access to them. So tell us about these papers and what extra and what new insight they provide. Well, Cary Grant collected papers throughout his life, collected his own personal papers, but also collected a lot of papers relating to his career. Um, and he curated them quite quite carefully. I should say he archived them quite carefully um, and was so intent on looking after them that he actually had a giant vault built into his house um, to protect them in case of, of fire or mudslides or uh, any any other threat that might come uh, in the in the Beverly Hills of California. Uh, and so he, he kept all of this material and People who knew him said uh, on some evenings he liked to pour over it and, and review it. Uh, and then when he died, the papers were donated to a, a library in Los Angeles, a film industry library, um, where researchers can look at them. Um, and it just struck me as very odd that there have, been, there, there have been many biographies of Cary Grant in the past, but none of them really made use of these papers. Um, so that was that was the reason I wrote the book. That was my that was my in for the story. And do they provide this new perspective? Yes, they do. I mean, the the aspect of his life story that always interested me so much was how he did get from being a working class boy in Bristol to being the most glamorous man ever. Uh, and there's a, there was a missing period that I I was very intrigued to find out about really uh, the 1920s, which were also his 20s. Um, and uh, his papers revealed a lot to me about what had happened to him as a teenager uh, and how, how he came to leave Britain and go to America um, and the, the very slow ascent uh, of his career. And it is an extraordinary story. And Cary Grant has always been one of my favourite actors. And you know, everything from the Hitchcock movies to, you know, these fast talking comedies that he did. Talk to me about the image and talk to me about the movies and how successful he was at the at the height of his powers, that he really was an iconic movie star as well as being involved in these great movies. 
That's right. It, it actually took him a long time in Hollywood to find his feet. So he uh, spent about five years making, making five films a year at the beginning of his career, and nothing really clicked. And then suddenly he started making screwball comedies, films like The Awful Truth and Bringing Up Baby and His Girl Friday. And that's, that's where his image really clicked. And it was to do with being this incredibly handsome, glamorous man. But it was also a matter of uh, slipping on the banana peel, that he, he was not afraid of slapstick comedy. Uh, so he was really the first who did both, who, who could be glamorous and yet then cut himself down to size with some bit of physical comedy that made him seem less perfect and more human. And talk to me about his is I suppose his approach to Hollywood. He he wasn't he wasn't afraid of standing up for himself. He he was prepared to go against the studio system in the nineteen thirties and go freelance and assert his own independence and power. Yes, he spent five years under contract. His first five years in Hollywood were under contract to Paramount Studios, um, and he had no control over his career. Uh, and his career really wasn't going anywhere. And so when that contract came to an end, that very exclusive, well-paid, but frustrating contract, because he had so little power, when that came to an end, he did what very, very, very few other stars did and said, you know, I'm not going to resign. I think, um, I, think I, can, I think I can do my, I can work out my career better than you're working it out for me, Paramount. Uh, and so he, he left the studio. Um, he gave up the guaranteed income and protection that came with having a studio contract and said he was going to freelance. And really, nobody did this in 1936, 1937, when, when he um, took his first steps out. And the remarkable thing is, as soon as he did it, he, as soon as he was able to choose his own films, he chose screwball comedy and he became... Uh, one of the biggest stars right off the bat. Right, as soon as he was at the studio door, he was doing he was doing really well. Um, and then throughout his career, he continued to vary the roles uh, that he played. For example, working with Hitchcock, who of course didn't make screwball comedy but made but made thrillers. So he he didn't stick with one thing, but but he guided his career very well through a lot of different genres. Can we also talk about his private life? Because he got married five times and seemed to be always searching for love and for happiness. He, he became a father for the first time at the age of 62. That there definitely seemed to have been something missing in, in terms of his personal side. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I think if we want to, um, if we want to uh, psychoanalyze him, it's, it's, it seems fairly straightforward to me that his, his relationship with his mother cast a very long shadow over his love life. And, and that is that uh, one day when he was 11 years old, he came home from school and she was she was not there. Um, she was simply gone. And he didn't see her again for, for 20 years. And throughout that time, he assumed, uh, from the time he was 11 till the time he was in his 30s, he assumed that she had abandoned him um, and, and, perha- and perhaps had died. Um, and... You know, he's sort of given up on ever finding her again or seeing her again. And I don't think he he really ever got over that, the insecurity that stemmed from that, the lack of trust, the insecurity um, that that left him with. His relationships with women were always troubled. Um, his his fifth marriage, his last marriage, uh, when he was in his when he was in his 70s, was a very happy one. Um, 
but the the previous four marriages and many other relationships that he had with with women um, were quite were quite fraught. Um, and the women always said, yes, he was as charming uh, as you see in the films. He was as handsome. He was as charming. He was as much fun as you would think. But he had these trust issues um, and he was always afraid um, that the relationship was going to come to an abrupt end, um, that the women were cheating on him or disinterested in him. Um, he just he could not um, trust women, particularly women who loved him. And how do you think he's assessed now as an actor? Is he someone who chose wisely and was in these classic iconic films? Or is he seen as a great actor who contributed substantially to making these great movies? Well, you know, I, I think it's a bit of both because one of, the, one of the remarkable things about him, once he was a freelance, he went out of his way. He chose to work with some of the greatest directors. So he chose to work with Howard Hawks. He chose to work with Leo McCarey, um, with Alfred Hitchcock, of course. Um, and those directors helped him sh- reshape his his star image. Um, so even though we think of him as uh, being Cary Grant and we think of him as being one thing, if you if you go back and watch all of the films and and uh, I I watched them all in order, and so I could see how much change there was, um, and that he he reinvents himself every few years and reinvents himself every few films uh, in order to to keep his audience happy. And I think it's remarkable how long he was popular. He was, he was still the number one uh, male screen actor in the 1960s when he retired. Um, so, you know, it's four, four decades uh, on, on top. Um, and I, I think, I think we do look back at him now as a, as a great actor. I think he was a great actor in terms of cinema technique um, and, uh, conveying his his thoughts uh, in very subtle ways on screen um, but he also he also knew that he had to work with the best and he did and finally if you were to recommend one movie for our listeners to to watch during the week <laughs> the classic what north by northwest uh, maybe something with grace kelly to catch a thief or do you have a a different personal favorite well i mean if if someone wants to watch one uh, I think North by Northwest is it because, to my mind, it's like a it's like a medley of his greatest hits. There's a little there's a little bit of every Cary Grant film in North by Northwest. It's a very episodic film, and I think Hitchcock was doing that on on purpose was was making the Cary Grant film to end all Cary Grant films. Um, but I also think you can't do any better than than one of the earliest films he made as a as a freelance, The Awful Truth. Uh, from 1937, a screwball comedy that's that's um, I think as delightful now as it was when it first came out in 1937. Very good. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I think our listeners will enjoy uh, catching up on the life, the work and indeed the private life of the Hollywood legend Cary Grant. The book is called Cary Grant, The Making of a Hollywood Legend, published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Mark Glancy. And Mark, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The
The events of 1949 in China reverberated around the world and throughout the rest of the 20th century. A new book follows the huge armies that swarmed over the country, the exile of once powerful leaders and the alarm of foreign nations watching on. The book is called China 1949, Year of Revolution. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Academic and costs about €24. Euro. The author is Graeme Hutchings. And Graeme, you're very welcome to the show tonight. I'm delighted to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's a fascinating story and it has so many important implications for the world today. But let's go back to 1949. Why, why has it been such a critical year in China's history? I suppose the first thing to say about it, Patrick, is that it was the year in which the People's Republic of China was born. That state was proclaimed on the 1st of October 1949 in Beijing. And It is the People's Republic of China, of course, which is still with us today. The events of 1949 are celebrated uh, as a key part of the founding story, what perhaps uh, scholars would relay as the founding myth of modern China. So it's a canonical date in China's history and evolution, one cherished by the present rulers of China. But there are more dimensions to it than that. It was a decisive year, a critical year, certainly in a very long-running civil war in China. Now, that's long-running. It was long-running in 1949, but it is still in many respects underway, and we can doubtless explore that in our time together. So 1949 sits, as it were, on a continuum of the unfinished Chinese civil war. Another dimension worth Uh, mentioning here is that it gave birth to Red China and therefore brought the largest uh, populated country in the world into the camp in the late 1940s and early 1950s, known as the socialist camp, led by the Soviet Union. And that was a matter of great moment for uh, the rest of the world, particularly the United States, particularly the United Kingdom. So uh, there is yet another aspect of the key significance of 1949 we should set out uh, for our discussion. And what's very interesting, Graeme, is that you also don't just cover the political dimension, you also cover the human dimension, trying to, to explore the lives who were caught up in, in everything that's happening with the civil war, from the American ambassador to writers to, to school children. And how important was it for you to try and include that, that personal side and have the people as part of the story? It was pretty essential. Uh, a civil war, as too many countries are aware, is the most bitter and least pleasant aspects of any kind of conflict. And in China, civil war was undertaken on a huge scale. Millions of lives were affected. Families were set apart and sundered. Relationships and friendships were ended. It was a period of triumph for some, if you supported Mao Zedong's revolutionary cause and that of the Chinese Communist Party, it was a tragedy. For others, if you had some attachment to the old ways of China or were members of Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang government, you had to flee or were best uh, advised to flee, leave your homeland. This dimension of the human uh, tragedy and triumphs uh, was uh, something that it occurred to me hadn't made its way into the literature of the period in um, the way I think I think it should. So. It was a concern of mine to 
track this year through the lives of individuals as well as the more familiar and important national political and geopolitical dimensions. And I think it gives a different sense then because it's not just some abstract concept uh, and it's, it's putting a human face or a many human faces on all of this turmoil. I hope that's right. Uh, because it did touch lives in a very significant way. People were uprooted. Um, The whole cast uh, and course of their lives were affected by this. And you have people in Taiwan uh, to this day, of course, who are first-generation people in that island. Some of them have had an opportunity over the last 20 or 30 years to go back to their roots to see such members of their family Uh, that remain. Um, But uh, it's still a story of separation. It's still a story of loss for those people. And that aspect of it, that human dimension was something that I wanted to bring in to the scheme of things. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about Taiwan, because that's an important part of the story as well, because it's, it's not a complete victory for the communists in the civil war because of Taiwan. That's right. I tend to use the word critical year rather than decisive year. So essentially what happened in 1949 is that Mao's communist armies rolled over their nationalist government opponents. They did so in an extraordinary sweep that took them really from Manchuria up in the northeast there, the industrial heartland of China, right down into the southwest. So they covered thousands of miles and they Uh, affected the surrender or defeat of hundreds of thousands of troops, and they ended the year in control of most parts of the mainland. Okay, Tibet was not yet in their grip, uh, and there were one or two other pockets of resistance, but essentially they folded up the country. But Taiwan was the separate issue. That is where Chiang Kai-shek, at the close of 1949, relocated his government, That's where his defeated troops fled. That's where hundreds of thousands of civilians anxious to avoid war and anxious to avoid communism ended up. And critically, this was an aspect of 1949 that we must never forget, that it gave birth not just to Red China or the People's Republic of China. It created two Chinas in a sense, because the Republic of China, which was in charge of the country at the beginning of 1949, ended up in Taiwan, and that remains in existence today, much to the displeasure of the communist government in Beijing. There are still two parts of the world that call themselves China. I'm interested in your insights into what might happen today or what might happen next, because Again, these topics are still very, very hot and very relevant. I know you're now an associate at Oxford University's China Centre and an honorary professor at Nottingham. But before this, you were a foreign correspondent in Beijing and then in Hong Kong. So having having been on the ground, what perspective would, would you have on whether there will be a conclusion to this, whether there'll be unification or whether there will be some other, other uh, uh, outcome to this? Well, you put your finger on a very critical question. 1949 and the sequence of events that flows from it are those points at which history meets international relations and meets contemporary geopolitics. And I think the situation is, in some respects, rather plain. That is to say, 
that the Chinese Communist Party, is particularly since Xi Jinping took over in 2013, is determined to complete the final aspect, the final link in the civil war, and to take over uh, Taiwan. He has said on more than one occasion that this cannot be left for future generations. It's worth, as a bit of a sidebar, just for reminding ourselves here that we have in China a country which has achieved great global standing without being fully unified. And that's rather a different pattern of events than the one we as historians are familiar with. If you take the case of the United States of America, for example, it was a civil war that led to full unification and subsequently its greater stature. In the case of the United Kingdom, there was a process of unification as well before international uh, impact and power was truly felt. The same, of course, in Germany, in Italy, in China. We have the uh, greatness of the country, uh, according to various measures, well established, but still a divided country. And that is a matter of great concern to the communists in particular, for whom this is an issue of legitimacy. Uh, as long as there are two governments that call themselves Chinese, that's a matter of great dissatisfaction for the communists, and they're determined to do something about it. Now, uh, having had some experience on the ground, as you uh, you point out, the situation is precarious. There are 25 million or thereabouts people in Taiwan who, if not wholly satisfied with the status quo, because their government is not recognized by many countries around the world, nonetheless, like their own freewheeling democracy and prosperous economy, and do not much like the idea of reunification with the mainland. So we have here a delicate and a troubling situation, one which affects not just the Chinese people, but the United States in particular, and Japan and other countries in East Asia, which would certainly be affected as many of us beyond that would be, should China recall, have recourse to violence to complete reunification. And I'm afraid that the trends suggest that is more likely than not over the next few years. Okay, well, I think that's a brilliant note on which to end this. We could talk to you for much longer. and I think people, our listeners, will enjoy your book. It's called China 1949, Year of Revolution. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Academic, the author, Graeme Hutchings. And Graeme, thanks so much for joining us tonight. My pleasure, Patrick. Great to be with you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. King Arthur's death better known as the alliterative Mort Arthur, is a Middle English poem that was written in Lincolnshire at the end of the 14th century. A source work for Mallory's later poem, it is an epic tale which documents the horrors of war, the loneliness of kingship and the terrible price paid for arrogance. And it's now explored in a brilliant new book and indeed its lessons. And the book is called King Arthur's Death, the Alliterative Mort Arthur. It's published in hardback by Unbound and costs 1899 sterling, so about 22 euro. The author is Michael Smith. And Michael, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Can we talk about the background to the poem, when it was written and maybe why it was written? Because it seems to make uh, use of what was happening politically at the time and kind of drawing some illusions maybe with, with some of the conflicts that were going on in England. 
Yes. Um, I mean, it, it forms part of a corpus of poems uh, 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 called the now called the Alliterative Revival, uh, which were largely written in the West and Northwest of England at this time, but not necessarily so. As you've just alluded, the Mort Arthur itself uh, is thought to have come from Lincolnshire. But the political background, um, it, it's, it depends how you date this poem. But and, and, and depending on how you do that, it places it either in the 1370s or as late as 1402 or even 1410. I see its background largely um, as the transition of power between Henry Bolingbroke and uh, Richard II, that great conflict which saw Richard II usurped by Bolingbroke. And of course, he was uh, Richard II ended up at Pontefract Castle and was starved to death in February 1400. So, the, so what seems to come through in the alliterative Mort Arthur is this um, the subtext of two kings, one Arthur, who we might loosely interpret in one way as Henry Bolingbroke, later Henry IV, and the other as Mordred, who we might interpret as Richard II. And if we do that, it sort of has a message for the reader in that we can see, we begin to look at what is a correct king, what is a legitimate king, is a legitimate king one who is rightfully has rightfully inherited his throne from his father, or is it more to do with a, a king who rules justly? And it's thought that Richard II was, you know, a tyrannical king. He was initially a young king, a boy king at the age of ten, um, uh, ruled largely by favourites and more powerful people in the land like John of Gaunt. Uh, and whether people uh, and, and so whether that makes a strong king or whether a king is more legitimate like Henry the Fourth, um, more powerful, more assertive in what he wants, that's sort of sort of what lies behind this. And there's also some very interesting parallels with present day politics as well. Uh, the fear of foreign domination and having to stand up for 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 your home rights. There's th that nationalist element then also in terms about how wars are fought, that it's it's something that really uh, has a lot of uh, topical themes as well. I think so. I think there's something really telling about this. Uh, so many messages in this poem 600 years ago for modern day politics. If you if you think about typical sort of populist or even nationalist politics, they often um, spell out a future which um, it, it, it's, it's almost dreamlike. It is things are always better in the future. We can't tell you how, but they will be. And in King Arthur's death, Arthur goes and fights the Roman emperor abroad, which you might even say is, you know, some kind of maverick British patriot fighting the EU. He goes off and does this. And at a great cost to himself, his land collapses. Uh, Mordred takes over. He has to return home. He fights Mordred. He kills Mordred, but he is wounded by his own sword of state. He's lost all his great knights. He's lost everything. And of course, he is fatally wounded and he dies. So the price for this illusory uh, ambition 
is the destruction of his own kingdom. And it, uh, to me, it's just so redolent of, of so many things today in Britain and around the world. Populist politics always promised jam tomorrow. And you can never criticize a populist or nationalist because the blame will always go somewhere else. It's, it's, it's quite fascinating. Talk to me about the alliteration in the work, because that's a, a huge point and, and in the way you've maximized this for the, the modern audience. Well, these alliterative poems, um, they have a, a wonderful um, rhythm to them. And, and, and this method of poetry goes back to Anglo-Saxon times, uh, Beowulf, for example. It revived in the 14th century uh, for reasons which are not entirely clear. Um, but typically, um, they follow a very similar meter to uh, Saxon poetry, but because the language is more advanced by the Middle Ages, uh, you have uh, uh, influences from French, from Latin, from German, so much, so much coming through. And um, so typically, uh, a medieval literature poem at this period will alliterate usually on the first letter of two or three words within the line, and there will be a caesura or break in the middle of the line. Uh, and sometimes the alliteration, you might have two alliterations in the first half and one in the second. Sometimes it will be one in the first half and twice in the second. Sometimes the alliteration is on the vowel uh, or on a consonant within a word. So it's not always predictable as to where it will flow. In a, in a poem such as Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, which I translated an earlier book for Unbound, uh, it's a very gentle alliteration. But with the alliterative Mort Arthur, it has a rattling alliteration, which can be read at pace. And it's almost like hammering nails at a wall. It just goes on and on and on. And the, the poet himself, sometimes he will alliterate not just on one line, but will alliterate the same letter or sequence of letters um, over several lines. So F, 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 F goes on, you know, or K, 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 or, you know, whatever it is. And so sometimes he gets carried away with his work as he's doing it. He's almost competing with himself to out-alliterate himself as well as his fellow alliterative poets. And we're hoping that you might do a reading from your new translation for our listeners. OK, well, there's one here where Mordred kills... Sir Gawain. This is part of Arthur's great loss when he comes back to Britain, when he knows that learns that Mordred has taken over the kingdom. Gawain impetuously lands early with um, a few of his knights. He does great damage to Mordred's army in the nature of these chivalric events, but eventually he is cornered, outnumbered, and is slain by Mordred. And this is the passage where um, Gawain is killed. Then he moves on to Sir Mordred among all his knights, and met him mid-shield, and hammers him soundly. And as that shirker shrinks back from the sharp blade, he shears him deep in the short ribs by surely a handspan. The shaft shot and shuddered into the shining traitor, so the blood which is shed runs over his shanks, and showed as to burnish his shining shin plates. And as they shift and shove, he crashes to the earth, when a lance with a lunge lands slap on his shoulders. Lolling back a furlong, he falls loathsomely wounded. Gawain flies on that renegade, falls onto the ground, but his burning anger turned good look against him. He draws a short, shocking knife, all sheathed in silver, and should have slain him, but no slit could be made. 
his hand slipped and slid aslant on the chain mail, and slyly the other slides in from below. The traitor cuts him with a hard-tempered knife through the helm and the head, and high into the brain. And thus Sir Gawain is gone, that good man of arms, with no ready rescue, how great was the sorrow. Yes, Sir Gawain is gone, that guide to so many, from Gower to Guernsey, and the great lords of Glamorgan, of Wales, all grand gallant knights. Glee will gladden no more those who glimpse this grim glory. Brilliant, and it's an absolutely brilliant new translation of an epic English poem. Uh, congratulations, Michael, on the book. It's called King Arthur's Death, the Alliterative Mort Arthur. It's published in hardback by Unbound and costs eighteen ninety nine sterling, so about twenty two euro. The author, the the translator, the person who uh, is bringing this uh, epic to life for a new generation is Michael Smith. And Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Not at all. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Isaac Newton is celebrated throughout the world as a great scientific genius who conceived the theory of gravity. But in his early 50s, he abandoned his life as a reclusive university scholar to spend three decades in London. And a new book explores these years when Newton became an ambitious cosmopolitan gentleman, president of London's Royal Society, master of the mint and an investor in the slave trade. The book is called Life After Gravity, Isaac Newton's London Career. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press and costs £25 sterling, so about €29. Euro. The author is Patricia Farah. And Patricia, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on. I'm absolutely delighted to talk to you. Why are these years neglected when people talk about Isaac Newton? Because they are fascinating years. They're three fascinating decades and there's so much going on. But why is the attention always given to the earlier years? Well, I think it stems from the 19th century and people didn't like to think of him rushing around. There's a wonderful quotation about how he behaved like a great dandy, rushing around town in a coach with, it, with all his horses. But I think his greatest biography is a man called Richard Westfall. And after he finished his biography, Westfall underwent a, um, a period of psychoanalysis. And he made this extraordinary confession that he was himself um, a Presbyterian elder. And he didn't want to contemplate that aspect of Newton's character, the side of Newton that was interested in earning money, that was interested in exploiting other people, that was ruthless and ambitious and very businesslike. He didn't want to think about that. He wanted to keep Newton up on the pedestal as being the greatest scientist, a great genius. And he didn't want to think about him in a different way. And I have no such qualms. I'm not a Victorian scientist. I'm certainly not a Presbyterian elder. And I think it's interesting to see all aspects of this man, not only the great scientific work that he did, but all the other great contributions that he made. He was, was very uh, effective at the Mint, and he had quite a big influence on the British economy and on the Irish economy as well. And maybe let's talk about some of that influence, because he seems to have been someone who also enjoyed the kind of the celebrity trappings that came with his fame. And he yes, enjoyed being... Myths 
that he was very reclusive and that he never ate and wasn't interested in his clothes. When you look at the inventory of his possessions when he died, it was on a vellum scroll 17 feet long. And he owned a carriage and he owned beds and curtains and so many plates and glasses and candlesticks. He uh, constantly commissioned sculptures and pictures of himself. And then he had that ultimate in Georgian luxury. He owned two silver chamber pots. So it seems to me that he was a man who liked to live luxuriously. And he certainly knew about, he followed the, the stock market, he invested in it, he invested in many things. And that, that link with the slave trade, the fact that he was investing in that, you know, that would be, it, was, it wouldn't have been controversial in his lifetime, but it's certainly controversial now. And That's why I wanted to write about it. I, mean, I, don't think, I don't think the words slave trade and Newton have ever appeared in the same sentence before. He was a very heavy investor in the East India Company, and he was also a big investor in the South Sea Company, which was going to repay the national debt by taking enslaved peoples across the Atlantic. And he was not a very... Uh, he was not very good at predicting the stock market. What he did was he bought in when the price of the shares was low and he watched the price go up and then very sensibly he sold. And then he made what now seems like a classic mistake. He bought in again at a higher price than he'd sold for and he held on to those shares and he watched the price go up and up and up and then suddenly the bubble burst, the share price collapsed and he lost an absolute fortune. I think there's another important way in which he relied on international global trade. When he was in London, one of the things that he did was to produce the second and third editions of the Principia, his great book on gravity. And he had to double check a lot of the figures. And he needed data from all over the world. So what he did was contact all the people who were, who were traders, who were stationed in posts around the world, who were involved in in trading, enslaved people, and also goods as well. And he got them to make observations of the tides, and he collected together the information that they sent him. While he was based in the middle of London, he never traveled anywhere. So all this international observations, which he incorporated into his great book on gravity, did depend on information that was sent in from global traders stationed all around the world. So there's a sense in which this great book, we think of it as a very sort of pure scientific research book, but it depends on, on capitalist trade. And it really shows this global dimension to Newton and his work then as well and the link between science and capitalism. It changes, I suppose, how we think of Newton. I think it's so tempting to put him on a pedestal. We want to think of him as this pure genius who never had a worldly thought in his life, but just dedicated himself to scientific research. And it's quite clear that he is not like that. He, he was like everybody. He, he craved honours. He was absolutely delighted when he was made a knight. He was an MP for Cambridge University twice. And he moved in very, very cosmopolitan, wealthy circles while he was in London. There's also a particular Irish angle. Uh, Jonathan Swift was very, very critical of Newton. I mean, he was quite satirical about him in Gulliver's Travels. But that was probably prompted by a row there'd been when, uh, although um, Newton was in charge of several different mints, Dublin wanted to set up its own mint. 
and Newsom said, no, uh, all, the, all the Irish money has got to be made in England and Dublin shouldn't be independent. It should fall under Irish rule. And he gave a contract for making a lot of Irish copper coins to an Englishman called Mr. Wood, who lived in uh, Bristol. And he didn't monitor the production of those coins properly. So Swift got really annoyed that this English manufacturer was sending over substandard coins uh, to Ireland instead of allowing the manufacture of coins to happen in Dublin itself. So that was, a, that was just one of the ways in which Newton was politically very influential as well. And finally, you mentioned that we shouldn't put him on a pedestal. Should we take him off a pedestal, though, given that connection with the slave trade? Or should we contextualise it in terms of the investments he was making at the time? I am very much opposed to removing people from their pedestals. Uh, I think, on the other hand, I think it's very uh, it's very salutary to think about what people were doing. It would be unfair to single Newton out. I mean, the whole country depended on the slave trade. That's why abolition took so long. The whole of the British economy relied on slavery. And I don't think Newton was particularly more guilty than anybody else. On the other hand, I do think it's important to realize that even someone as famous as that, someone who's a great iconic hero, he also was implicated in the slave trade. And we need to acknowledge that and we need to think about it. And taking someone off a pedestal is just hiding the evidence. We, we need to explore it thoroughly and confront it, in my opinion. And you ex certainly explore the evidence and confront it very well in this book. It's called Life After Gravity, Isaac Newton's London Career. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press and costs £25 sterling, about €29. Euro. The author, Patricia Farah. And Patricia, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you very much indeed for inviting me and for asking me such good questions. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Handbells are emblematic of early Christianity in Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. Produced between the 5th century and the 12th, they survive in large numbers and were used originally to regulate monastic time and to punctuate the liturgy. But as we'll see, they also had some wider uses as well and some very fascinating uses. And these are all explored in a new book, The Early Medieval Handbells of Ireland and Britain. It's published in hardback by Wordwell and costs €50. Euro. The author is Cormac Burke. And Cormac, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks indeed, Patrick. Because it is a fascinating story and it's... It's the fact that you do have these bells being used for uh, very many different purposes and like they, they were regarded as treasures. They were and uh, I suppose their reputation uh, and their status increased over, you know, over 1500 or more years. So they've had a lot of different uses, mundane and utilitarian to begin with, and then it sort of snowballed from there. So they found a place in tradition and in uh, in people's devotional observance, I suppose, that uh, developed literally right up to the 19th, 19th century. Let's talk about some of these uses, because, for example, uh, some of them were attributed to different saints and then they, prayers were said upon them, they were carried into battle. Uh, some believed that they had healing properties, that these were things that had names and that were objects of veneration, but also objects of great power. Attribution to the saints is maybe the key thing. You know that they they were initially accessories to everyday monastic living, really, in monastic communities. But uh, 
they were associated with founding fathers and in a few cases with founding mothers as well. And uh, it was by dint of that connection with the cults of the saints that they really found their place in Irish tradition. So, for example, a bell attributed to St. Patrick, as we know, one of the most famous ones, but there are lots of others, so that many parishes up and down the country have uh, an association with a particular bell, but that bell typically carries an association with a local patron. And often these are very local figures that uh, are barely known outside their own locality. But uh, people will recognise locally names of saints, you know, that are names that are still in use today and uh, that have particular local uh, reference. And that's the way it is with the bells. Very often their fame is local in particular. And it's in a few cases the fame was national, as in the case of Patrick's Bell. And it's interesting the way, apart from stone monuments, these bells are pretty much the oldest continuously transmitted category of object that we have. Yeah, that's one of the things that really stands out for me because it's the idea that all the, through all the vicissitudes of, you know, language loss and, you know, the convulsion that the Reformation brought, that these bells survived right down in continuous ownership in many cases. So that, for example, when you look at, you know, secular metalwork from Ireland from the Middle Ages, uh, nothing from the earlier period has been handed down continuously. Everything's been found in the ground or recovered from underwater, but that's not the case with many of the bells. They were handed down continuously and never lost, never buried. And so they had this particular quality of being able to survive. Such was the reverence that, uh, uh, you know, attached to them. And so when we look to some kind of emblem of continuity in, an, in Irish tradition, in material, in material terms, well, the bell surely stands out as that emblem, to my mind. So talk to me about the connections then with Scotland and Wales and why there just seem to be uh, this shared experience between Ireland, Scotland and Wales, but not necessarily with England. That's uh, one of the interesting things that, that emerges in the study of these things and that the tradition had to begin somewhere, and my feeling is that it really did begin uh, in what we call Wales in the in the early British Church. Uh, that there was a tradition there of, in Roman Britain of making small iron bells, and that that was adapted locally by British monastic communities. And very often, Irish tradition refers back to uh, British Welsh tradition as being the kind of exemplary one that they took their start from. And my sense is that bell-making began in what we call Wales, came into Ireland then, in, literally from the time of St. Patrick onwards, and that then was re-exported back to North Britain, into Scotland, with the, with the Columban movement, really, from Ireland into Scotland. But the result, of the upshot of this is that we now have bells preserved in Ireland, Scotland and Wales. So they form a kind of seamless tradition, really, in terms of the way they were made and used and kept and uh, revered in all of these three places. But England, uh, there seems to have been a dichotomy there culturally, and so bells didn't really find a place in the early Anglo-Saxon church once it was uh, fully Christianized, at least not bells of the type that we have in the other three countries. So they are very much peculiar to the Celtic-speaking church, whether Gaelic, uh, Irish, or, or the, the British-speaking Welsh church. And you were able to catalogue all the handbells that exist or that are known to have existed in Ireland and Britain? That's the idea, Patrick, yes. And that is, this began a long time ago. It took me, of course, into the 
various museums throughout these islands, but also into the churches, because although the, the bells that survive in Wales and Scotland are fewer, a lot of them are still kept in churches in the local parishes, and so that took me into these places, and a mighty interesting journey it was too. And of course, the other interesting thing that emerges in terms of our own uh, contemporary society is that the bells have been preserved in Scotland, in the uh, in the Church of Scotland, in the Presbyterian Church, and in Wales, in the uh, as part of the Anglican Communion in the Church uh, in Wales. Whereas the tradition in Ireland was always they were preserved and handed down in Catholic families. So we have this, as I say, a seamless tradition of the making and the using of bells. But yet, post-Reformation, the, the, these three different communions all uh, kept the bells unto themselves. And they did so in exactly parallel, parallel ways. So the bell then emerges, if you like, as uh, the key emblem of the material culture of the of the early church and of the continuity that church brought with it. Fascinating. Well, Cormac, thank you so much for joining us tonight to discuss it. It's the early medieval handbells of Ireland and Britain. The book is published in hardback by Wordwell and costs €50. Euro. The author, Cormac Burke. And Cormac, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Patrick. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be looking at the life and legacy of the enigmatic Roman emperor Hadrian, and we'll be finding out if there was more to him than the building of a wall. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history. On News Talk.